Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? The Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Diana Garvin. Diana is an assistant professor of Italian at the University of Oregon, as well as an affiliated faculty member at the UC Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies, and she joins us today to discuss her book, Feeding Fascism, The Politics of Women's Food Work. Thanks for joining us, Diana. Thanks so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about what it is that you study and how you came to study it? I write on food, politics, and power. I've always been interested really in both of those topics, food and politics, and from very early saw them as connected. I loved cooking from the time I was in high school, and I'm originally from Boston in the Northeastern United States, and so many of the cooks and chefs in restaurants spoke Portuguese or Spanish or Italian as their first language. So in order to learn from those cooks, I started learning the languages so that I could work with them. And then along the way, they started passing me cookbooks, but always with a caveat saying, well, you know, this ingredient was really expensive under this particular government. You can't get this in my region. And it's because of this historic event. And all those things always made me feel that food was so much more than what we saw right in front of us on a plate, that it was connected with these big, important ideas. And what I really love about it is that it makes politics so accessible. Oftentimes, it can feel pretty boring to be talking about politics or very dark when you're talking about an authoritarian regime like fascism. Food is a way of making those ideas tangible and making everyone realize that they can play a role in those conversations. Researching the history of these sort of movements, the the book looks at fascist Italy. It it can be tricky at the best of times, but I think it's probably fair to say that outside of this specific area, historians usually don't have the problem that, for example, the political ephemera got too greasy. What are some of the challenges that you face when you're studying the history of food? Oh, there are so many. They're so specific. In fact, I have had an issue with Greece in particular I had a memorable disagreement with a librarian who I love at the Wolfsonian Museum in Miami, Florida. This museum specializes in dictatorial kitsch, basically the junk that was created on the mass market under fascism. So a lot of people study more elite cultural productions like films and literature that were coming out during the 1930s. Because food is so accessible, 
a lot of the stuff that I look at is things like pasta boxes and wine bottles, cookbooks and recipe pamphlets. I came across a wonderful, it's basically a picture card. There was these little pictures that were tucked into chocolate boxes. And it was a way manufacturers had of getting kids to hassle their parents to buy more of a certain product. They could get more of these collectible cards, kind of like the prize in the bottom of a box of cereal. I found one that must have been tucked into a box of chocolates because it still had almost 100 years later, a little chocolate smudge on it. And I was dying to get the chemical composition of that smudge because that would tell me, oh, well, these ingredients were making it into the country at a time when that was illegal. How many, you know, what kind of cacao pods were making it in? Were they from Brazil? Are they coming from Central Africa? So I ran up to this librarian all excited. He was absolutely horrified. He said, oh my gosh, don't worry. We are going to scrape off the chocolate. We're going to get rid of it right away. We will preserve the photo on the other side of that card. Um, And it was a great photo. It was a very important photo. It was depicting military action of the fascist regime in North Africa. But I needed the chemical content of that chocolate. So it's one document with two completely different histories attached, depending on how you want to study what's left over. When examining this history, what did Italian fascism look like when viewed through the lens of food? You can see how little the regime actually changed people's everyday lives. In contrast to the grand claims that were made in propaganda, that all Italians, for example, were going to stop eating pasta and start eating rice, in reality, you see how much day-to-day continuance there was. For the most part, people kept preparing la cucina povera. So that was you know, now the much-vaunted cooking of the poor. Um, and it was kind of covered over with this veneer of... It, pa- fascism tried to recast poverty as patriotism, but really it had very little... It was a way of papering over the fact that the regime was actually not able to get people the delicious meats and cheeses that they really desired. You mentioned there was this attempt to you know, do away with pasta. That seems unimaginable now. How did that go down? I maintain it contributed to the fall of the regime. It's If you can imagine a more unpopular movement to try and put into Italy. So it, it come, the idea to get rid of pasta originally comes from the Futurist Cookbook. So this is this fringe group of artists who approached food as the raw material for art. And they had the idea that people shouldn't be eating these heavy plates of carbohydrates. Instead, they should be eating powders and pills. So you can think of like a Ferran Adria El Bulli style dining. That's basically what the Italian futurists were advocating. And most people thought they were nuts. The stuff was not widely adopted. But it did allow Benito Mussolini to look much more moderate when he proposed similar ideas for economic rather than artistic reasons about about five years later. With the advent of the battle for grain, which was an economic and propagandistic policy of the fascist regime, um, Benito Mussolini was trying to get Italians to conserve bread and pasta by eating more alternative grains that were easy to grow in Italy. So that's stuff like rice. 
The idea was that if Italy didn't need to import grain, if it could grow enough grain on its own, then it would not need foreign trade partners, and then it could act unilaterally and invade foreign countries. So there was an economic impetus for this, but was there also a eugenicist one? I would argue that there was. The idea, what you see in a lot of the nutritional manuals, what you see, particularly for vulnerable groups like pregnant and breastfeeding mothers, small children, the elderly, even what you see in prescribed menus that were under regime control for soup kitchens, there is a bid to increase the caloric content and also the digestibility of foods acting on the current generation in order to promote a stronger, smarter second generation. Fascist Italy was not the only regime to take a eugenicist approach to food, but did their approach differ from other states? So a lot of these ideas were very, were kind of in the ether during this time. Even democratic regimes, even democratic governments were interested in eugenics. The United States, Great Britain. So you could find these movements all over the place. But I would argue that the Italian regime went much further. And what's specific is that they were much more interested in breastfeeding and pregnant mothers than other regimes were. This might be due to the uniqueness of Italian Catholicism, where there is the cult of the Mother Mary. And in fact, there's even the cult of the breastfeeding Mother Mary, Madonna Lactens. So this is a figure that goes all the way back to Renaissance Italy. And you could find her painted into every corner of everyday life. She was in she was in doctors' clinics, she was in churches, she was on street corner tabernacles. You could think of her as basically being like an image-based public service announcement that was trying to encourage women to breastfeed their own children. So that was aimed at the middle classes who would often hire a wet nurse. So an old, old idea, both based in Italian, in religion and in notions of health, but one that is then reenacted during the fascist regime, especially since while they're trying to increase so many tariffs on foreign imports, they have a baby formula crisis. Women's role in Nazi Germany was meant to be dedicated to children, kitchen, and church. How comparable was the Italian experience? Ah, in many ways it was similar. So children, kitchen, and church is certainly something that you see in Italian fascism. In fact, it's something that you see in Italian far-right groups today. I'm thinking of Georgia Maloney's uh, call to arms, the I am Georgia, I am Christian, I am woman, which has a very similar tripartite ring where it becomes some of the food practices are slightly different in Germany because Germany was slightly more economically developed than Italy was by the 1930s. So whereas in Italy, a lot of the things that the fascist regime asked women to do were difficult, but not a big shock. It was very, very surprising for a lot of women in Germany to be asked to do things like go on Hamsterfarten, which was basically a foraging trip, which meant that you would go into the countryside to gather greens to feed your family when food in the markets was scarce. Diana, the book deals with the workers who fed fascism. Could you tell us a little bit about the Mondina? 
Oh, they are truly one of my favorite groups. So the chapter that is on the Mondina is essentially a fangirl letter to some of the most badass grandmas that I have ever had the pleasure to come across. So this was a group of women who were, they're named for their profession, which is mon, the verb in Italian, mondare, which is to weed. So they're a migrant agricultural force that would gather from all over Northern Italy for the 40-day rice-weeding season. There's a beautiful neorealist film from 1948 called Riso Amaro, or Bitter Rice, that some people might know of. This is how a lot of people, if they've heard of the Mondine, where they've heard of them. And there are actually real Mondine in the back of that film. So all of the amazing singing that you hear, all of those extras, they actually were filming right out in the fields. Under fascism, because of the battle for grain, the regime was utterly dependent on these women to increase Italy's rice supply, and they were heralded across fascist propaganda. They appeared to be everything that the regime wanted women to aspire to be. They were um, physically robust. They were florid. They were capable of doing heavy work. They had lots of children. The only problem was they were some of the most anti-fascist people that you can possibly find. At their, women did not have suffrage until after fascism fell, but you could sometimes vote in local elections. And the political affiliations of the Mondine at the furthest right tended towards socialism. Most of them identified as communists, anarchists. And they were some of the most successful anti-fascist strikers, gaining workplace protections that a lot of their urban counterparts were not able to obtain, even in the darkest days of the regime. Is the song Bella Ciao about Mondine? Yeah, it starts with them. It's it's such a beautiful song. And it has gone, most people know this as a, a partigiano song, a song of resistance coming from World War II that's an anti-fat, it's still an anti-fascist song today. It actually starts with the Mondine. The Mondine were famous for their work songs. It would govern how they, it was basically how they kept their spirits up, even as their bodies lagged while working these at first 12 and then later eight hour days in the fields. And the original version of Bella Chow tells the story. It's the anguished goodbye, not of a partisan soldier, but of a young woman who's leaving for to go work in the fields. Um, I like to think that the Mondine would very much approve of these subsequent reworkings because they themselves were constantly reworking melodies, changing lyrics, and that rebellious spirit that is so clear in the song, I think is why it's still so potent in revolutionary environment and resistance environments around the world today. You still hear it in Italy. The most recent famous case that comes to mind is when the former kind of co-prime minister, Matteo Salvini, was taking the shuttle to the Rome Fiumicino airport, there is an amazing clip that you can find where the other folks who were on that airport shuttle spontaneously burst into the Partigiano version of Bella Ciao, singing all the way to the airport. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Diana Garvin about Italian fascism and food. You you mentioned they took their workday down from 12 to 8 hours, which seems like a 
a good effort in the midst of a fascist regime to be winning this sort of workplace right. What were some of the ways that the Mondina rebelled against fascism? They had a wide spectrum of types of resistance. It was the railway strikes that gained them the eight-hour workday. So for that, they laid across the train tracks. Um, In fact, it's famously recounted in a song and actually brought the regime of production, brought the machinery of production to a halt. The Mondine had always hated those trains. And part of the reason why was they were forced to ride in the stock cars. Obviously, the stock car is a really charged form of transportation during this period. It's being, you know, it is how Jews were transported to the Nazi camps, to the concentration camps. And even in this early, you know, far less, far less deadly context, it still has a dehumanizing effect to ride in a car that's meant for an animal. So the Mondine were able to stop all of the trains from moving across northern Italy. That was the main element in gaining the eight-hour workday. But letters that you can find at the Archivio Centrale dello Stato, which is the main, kind of Italy's main archive for government records under fascism, show that in contrary to propaganda that shows these women smiling and waving their straw hats as uh, fascist officials pass through their towns, in reality, there seems to have been a near constant state of striking and revolt, even at the township level. Diana, the resistance in Mondine was motivated, it seems, in part by um, political commitments to communism and so on. But in what ways was the fascist approach to food most distinctive from other political traditions in Italy. Ah, I see. Okay, so in terms of how fascism's approach to food is differing from, say, a liberal regime or what came after, certainly their propagandistic push is much, much heavier. They are leveraging forms of propaganda that weren't used before. So this is the first era where they can't – this is really the advent of mass society – So there are new forms of technology like cinema, which Mussolini had called l'arma più forte, the strongest, cinema is the strongest weapon, where that can be used to transmit, say, propagandistic newsreels to an audience that is eager for some kind of entertainment. Watching films was very different in the 1930s than it is now. People would typically spend an entire Saturday at the cinema So they were ingesting these newsreels only two or three minutes a piece, but they're watching them over and over for so many hours at a time. Radio is also transmitting speeches so that even if somebody is not attending a political rally in a major city, they can hear it all the way into the countryside. But even beyond that, fascism takes a novel approach to propaganda during this period in that it creates very interactive forms of propaganda. For example, it uses new forms of architecture to control how people make decisions about eating and feeding. In my book, I look at the architecture um, soup kitchens, many of which were attached to obstetric clinics as part of these kind of mega health complexes. And I also look at their plans for the new public housing projects and what the kitchens looked like there. And what we see is the regime was intensely interested in how people conducted the most mundane moments of their private lives. 
So to give you an example of how kitchens changed under fascism, originally the kitchen really was the main room in the house. Everyone would gather in in the central room, people, cows, chickens, because warmth was the main concern, because these are the days before central heating. As part of fascism's modernization projects, it erects big new public housing projects, particularly in the exurbs of major cities. So you see this in Milan, Turin, Rome. Garbatella is a very famous example. And in these buildings, the regime is aiming to give each room a specific purpose. And to do that, it shrinks the space. So no more one big multi-purpose room with all the people and all the activities. Instead, the kitchen is only for cooking. And it's supposed to have only one person there. And that person is supposed to be female. The tiles change color. Everything goes white and celestial blue. All of the materials are suddenly different. Everything moves from a heavy steel to a light shining aluminum. And at first, all these things might seem like general modernization projects. I mean, some of these things you can find everywhere. Um, But they're used towards specific purposes by the fascist regime. So all of those materials moving to ceramics on the walls, linoleum on the floors, aluminum in the dishware, those are actually, first, they're economic changes in that they support a burgeoning ceramics industry in Emilia-Romagna, and they support newly synthesized materials. The linoleum is coming out of factories in Milan. Aluminum is a very famous industry under fascism. But these quali- all of these materials don't just share an economic motive. They actually have something else in common. When you wipe them clean, they shine. And that fact mattered for the public housing projects, because in order to live in these new houses, you needed to meet certain specifications. It probably, if you wanted to live in one of these houses, it meant that you needed regime assistance financially. And the regime required that each family include what was known as a prolific mother. So that was defined by the regime as having a minimum of six children, although ideally your number would be something more like eight, 10, or 12. So this meant you had very little money, you had lots of kids, and probably very little time to clean your kitchen. It also meant that since you were kind of on the hook of the regime financially, that you would have frequent visits from visitatrice, or so-called visitors. So these were the typically the wives of minor fascist officials, folks that were fairly low in the bureaucratic food chain, upper middle class women who were visiting the kitchens of working class mothers as part of their volunteer work. And they were there to judge whether your kitchen was clean enough. And with these new materials, they could make that judgment at a glance. So they wouldn't even have to come in. They could just look at whether or not there is a smudge on your Violetti Mocha espresso machine and decide whether or not you're going to be allowed to stay. That sounds <laughs> very annoying to deal with. Uh, Data, if you'll forgive the cliche, Italy is a land of contrasts. What were the differences between how these fascist approaches to food and food production played out in the North versus in the South? There is truly a world of difference, not only between the South and the North, but also between the urban and rural spheres. 
Um, in some ways, some cities in the South might have more in common with cities in the North than with than a city in the North would with the countryside right nearby. Generally speaking, if the regime could have could access a town via infrastructure, it was going to be able to create a lot more. It was be it was it would be able to get its way. So you would see many more fascist projects going up in areas that were physically accessible, whether it mean whether that means a town that is relatively close to Rome, or whether it means that that town is highly accessible by train and to a lesser extent by even by telegram offices. Um, this is an era in which all sorts of connective infrastructure, is being put into place. In fact, it's why if you visit Italy today, you'll find the same typographic font in most train stations. That beautiful San Serif Futura that you'll see in, for example, in the Santa Maria Novella, the main station in Florence, you'll see it at Stazione Termini in Rome. It's because the same architect, Angelo Mazzoni, was going around putting in his favorite font everywhere as the regime was funding these projects. So accessibility was really what made the difference. Broadly speaking, fascism was able to make far fewer changes in the South than it was in the North. After all, Mussolini himself was born in Predapio, which is in Emilia-Romagna, so that kind of northern central region. And in many ways, Italians in the South experienced fascism as being a northern politics. Diana... Speaking of legacies, what do you think was the primary legacy of the fascist era on modern Italian food and women's food work? Oh, that's a great question. So much of this, so much of the legacy is not in the recipes, but in the bureaucracy surrounding food work. It truly is, the bureaucracy is truly the invisible archaeology that people have to sift through every day when they're trying to get things done. And it's amazing how little how little of it was removed over time. So you still see vestiges of these earlier laws and requirements and zoning. And of course, these physical structures themselves in the cityscape. To me, it's really striking how much of the physical world that fascism put into place remains there today and continues to prompt people to act in ways that they might not be totally conscious of because these buildings were put into place at a time when architects had fascist incentives in mind, and then that history was forgotten. Diana, when looking at the Maloney government in particular, what do you see as the legacy? Um, how is it present? Is, are we witnessing the reemergence of uh, some form of fascism? And how does it apply in terms of, I guess, food and, and women's food work? In terms of legacies of the fascist period and its approach to food that we see in current far-right policies today, I was most struck by Prime Minister Georgia Maloney's first public appearance in her role as prime minister. She chose to visit Coldiretti, which is one of the main farmers associations in Italy. And at that event, um, so this was on October 1st, 2022, she promised that her government was going to address three issues in Italian food and agriculture. And she named three things that we typically associate with the Italian left, sustainability, quality, and a key one, food sovereignty. 
And then she did something that I very much associate with uh, George Orwellian Newspeak. The idea of the ministry of uh, the ministry of peace is the ministry of war. This sort of change, this subtle sliding of not so subtle sliding of terms. What Maloney then did was she took each of these terms, which are borrowed from movements in agroecology and the left, and then redefined them to suit the purposes of the right. So she defines sustainability not in terms of environmentalism but in terms of economic sustainability. She said, uh, and I quote, the environment, yes, but with man at the center. She argued for anti-EU-wide labeling or protectionism as a means of promoting food sovereignty. Typically, when people talk about food sovereignty in Italy, they're referring to something like the Kilometro Zero movement, which is privileging local food. It's a celebration of Italian foodways rather than a push against foreign foodways. So this sets off some alarm bells for me because it is a tendency that you see with the far right again and again, which is this urge to grab what had been progressive and very popular policies and um, to make use of what many would consider to be a friendly term and then to rework its definition in such a way that what happens next becomes unrecognizable. Diana, just finally, and perhaps more broadly than Italy, but uh, looking at populist uh, nationalist movements around the world, you wrote an op-ed last year about the baby formula crisis in America. I was wondering, could you just speak a little bit about how the lessons uh, that we can take from the way that fascist Italy approached food could, could be applied to uh, modern movements and maybe some things that we need to be aware of uh, avoiding. Certainly. So what, um, what we see during, um, so this is referring to the, uh, yes, the Washington Post uh, op-ed. And it really, uh, the formula crisis that we had in the United States last year really shows why it's so important to look at what has happened before in some ways so we don't feel so alone in the present because the past can offer some truly helpful lessons in this regard about tendencies that happen on the state level. I mean, what we see in the case of the Italian formula crisis, at the time, um, most formula in... Um, during the 1930s, most formula in Europe was being produced by a what was then a very new Swiss company called Nestle. And um, this was true for Italy as well. So it was importing the majority of its mixable formulas from abroad. And that did not work with the new economic policies of autarky that were aiming to, produce, to increase domestic production and consumption. So you can think of autarky as economic self-sufficiency amped up to a very high degree. When Italy began to try and diminish its foreign imports, formula was one of the first areas to experience this as a crisis. Because this is a food where if, you, if a mother cannot produce enough milk, if the baby is not latching on, there are so many reasons why someone might not be able to breastfeed, many of which have to do with necessity and some of which have to do with choice. But in either case, what we see is a state level problem that then is blamed on the individual. 
So what you see coming out of the Italian formula crisis were um, not not arguments, no op eds against the state um, saying why did the re- why was the regime unable to provide for its people? Why is this trade policy resulting in a breakdown of the food supply chain? Rather, what you see are a flood of newspaper articles saying mothers are so selfish for not breastfeeding their children. And that's a very quick shift between a state responsibility and um, then asking individuals to shoulder it. And particularly when a state is able to leverage shame along with that shift, it can become very, very difficult to speak back to it. So... Um, This parallel example from history is obviously not to say that the United States is um, experiencing an autocracy or anything close to it, but it is a historical analog that can show us some of the psychological tendencies that crop up when there is a food supply chain problem, um, especially one that can become cast in really personal terms of who's supposed to do what within the family. Well, that's all we have time for on the radio, but we'll have a few more questions on the podcast with Dr. Garvin at 3cr.org.au slash yeah, nah, pass around. If people want to find more of Diana's work, you can get the book Feeding Fascism. Diana, I believe there's a code to get a discount on the book as well. There is. The University of Toronto Press is offering 25% off for the listeners of Yana Pasaran. And to get that 25% off, you should go to the University of Toronto Press website and enter the code GARVIN, so G-A-R-V as in Victor, I-N, 25, and that will get you 25% off the book. And people can also find your work at your website, dianagarvin.com, as well as on Twitter at Diana E. Garvin. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Well, Andy, that is our show. Global Intifada is up next. We will catch you next week. See you then. Del partigiano, 
Oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao E questo è il fiore del partigiano Morto per la libertà E questo è il fiore del partigiano Morto per la libertà E questo è il fiore del partigiano Morto per la libertà that 3CR received its community radio license in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward subscribe. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.